Now I wonder if um, I can drag those of you who are at the back of the room to your seats. I promise you there'll be time at the end where you can return to the wonderful items from the Bessie Rishbeth collection. Can I say a really warm good evening to you, our dear patrons and our dear friends. It's an enormous pleasure to welcome you to the National Library this evening. I'm Anne-Marie Schwertlich and it's my pleasure to be the Director General of this very wonderful library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders on our collective behalf, elders past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Tonight, it is a thrill for my colleagues and I to highlight the wealth of material in the library's collection about the history of women's suffrage and to launch our 2016 tax time appeal to raise funds to preserve, digitise and increase access to this material. The National Library has held a tax time appeal since 2009. The appeals raise funds to assist with vital preservation, documentation and digitisation of unique collection items, such as the library's medieval manuscripts and currency. This is work that would not otherwise be funded, often because we need to secure external expertise to help. The funds raised through these appeals mean that we can better reveal the extraordinary stories held within these walls. The library's collection is full of surprises, and tonight we're delighted to share with you a few of the surprises that we've uncovered in the Bessie Rishbeth collection. I hope that we will inspire you to learn more about the extraordinary women who fought for the vote using every tactic from genteel persuasion to violent confrontation. In England, more than a thousand suffragettes were imprisoned for insisting that women should have the right to vote. I also hope that we will inspire you to make a decision to donate to our women's suffrage appeal so that the struggle, the solitary confinement, the hard labour, the broken health and even death, but most importantly, the victory of these women will continue to have an international impact. Now, to tell us more about the Bessie Rishbeth collection, and her collection, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Beatrice Bijon, an adjunct fellow with the School of Humanities and Communication and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. Dr. Bijon was a Harold White Fellow at the National Library in 2011, using our collection to research the fight for women's suffrage, connecting links between the British and American movements and the Australian movement. 
So as you can see, she knows our collection extremely well. Please welcome Dr. Bijon, who will tell us more about the early years of the women's movement, both in Australia and internationally. Welcome, Beatrice. Well, thank you for coming here tonight. And it's, it's great to see um, the interest that so many people are, are showing for the fundraising, but also for women's suffrage. So you will see on, on, on the slide this quote from a letter uh, by the social justice campaigner Bessie Rishbeth. And it's um, a quote that competes with and uncannily anticipates Malcolm Turnbull's claim that there has never been a more interesting time to uh, be an Australian. And indeed, as this long election campaign grinds ever onwards, it seems appropriate to visit um, some interesting times when the campaign for women's rights as uh, citizens was at its uh, height. What I'm going to do um, this evening is um, to take you on a tour uh, of the Bessie Richworth papers housed here at the NLA. And I'm going to take you inside the, uh, the collection and explore its treasures. And also through, the, through its treasures, um, we're going to learn something of the maker of the collection, Bessie Richworth. She was an advocate for social reforms and a feminist who in gathering all these things, uh, wanted to leave a monument. So all the images I'm going to use, the items, the text I'm going to show and talk about, they're all from the collection. You'll see that some of the pictures, I think most of the pictures, have been digitized by uh, the NLA staff, and I really want, would like to uh, thank them now because they've been really helpful these last few days. Others uh, are photographs I took and that I store in my computer, so I suppose you'll see the difference. And maybe it will be a bit more relevant to see how it's important to donate, to digitize the collection. You know, when you're researching, having access from, you know, when you come from a um, um, faraway country, and it's good not to have to make all the trip here, to have all these, you know, documents um, uh, digitized and more accessible. Um, Right, I would like to read a poem, to read you a poem, which originally appeared in Votes for Women. That was the official uh, newspaper of the WSPU uh, before 1913. WSPU stands for Women's Social and Political Union, and it was the main militant organisation in the British campaign for women's suffrage. So having been printed by uh, the WSPU, the poem was reproduced um, on the 7th of May 1910 in the Australian Woman Voter. The Woman Voter was um, the monthly letter of the Women's Political Association, and that monthly was edited by Vida Goldstein. So it's one of the, uh, the many examples um, of the way information about the fight for women's suffrage was disseminated across the continents. So let's have a look at the poem. In fact, um, this poem was originally written by a Canadian poet and for reason other than suffrage. 
How did you fight? You beaten to earth. Well, well, what's that? Come up with a smiling face. It's nothing against you to fall down flat, but to lie there, that's disgrace. The harder you're thrown, why the lighter you bounce. Be proud of your blackened eye. It isn't the fact that you licked that counts. It's how did you fight and why. So this poem, in fact, um, encapsulates what the militant campaign for women's suffrage in Britain was developing into in 1910. And of course, the situation was very different in Australia at the time. White Australian women had been granted franchise in 1902. Of course, only white Australian women because all, um, well, universal suffrage in Australia would only achieve in 1962. So women, um, white women could um, vote. They were also allowed to stand for parliament. And Australia was the first nation but they were still interested in, uh, in women's suffrage, in the fight for suffrage elsewhere, and especially in Britain, which was still regarded as home by many Australians. So in Britain, however, things were very different. So 1910, right, so 43 years before 1910, 1867, was the first time that women's suffrage had been debated in the House of Commons in Parliament and defended by an MP, John Stuart Mill. And in 43 years, nothing much had happened. And since then, since the 1860s, suffragists, as the peaceful campaigners were called, uh, they had petitioned Parliament, they had lobbied MPs, organized public meetings, marched in processions, um, nothing had happened. Each time women's suffrage was debated in Parliament, it was laughed at, ridiculed, dismissed by the majority of MPs. But suffragists were resilient, they were very patient, and they trusted these men's voices. Millicent Fawcett, who was the main leader of the suffragists, or they were also called, these peaceful campaigners were also called constitutionalists because they were um, supposed to respect the constitution. So these women believed, and I'm quoting uh, Fawcett, they believe in the principle of supporting their movement only by argument, based on common sense and experience, and not by personal violence or law-breaking of any kind. Fawcett was convinced that their job was to win the hearts and minds of their countrymen to the justice of the cause, and that this could never be done by force and violence. So you see that these peaceful strategies were a far cry from the blackened eye you may get campaigning and the pride you may get out of it, and that is evoked in, uh, in the poem. But gradually, more and more, some women were finding that these tactics chosen by these quiet gentle, ladylike suffragists asking nicely for the vote, they were finding that they had these tactics, tactics had failed to produce any results. 
So gradually from 1903, really, as a result of the backtracking and the stalling of the government, as a result of the inertia of politicians, and also as a result of um, the growing disappointment, rougher tactics emerged. And this is the side of the British women's suffrage movement that is best remembered today. Um, the militant side of the movement, what, is, what was very spectacular, in fact, with its main leaders. Emlyn Pankhurst, the mother, uh, she was one of the leaders of um, the WSPU, the main militant organization. She had three daughters, who were all, the three of them were suffragettes. Christabel, um, she's wearing, um, she had a law degree and she's here wearing her gown. She was very close to her mother in terms of the politics of the movement. Sylvia Pankhurst, and she was an artist. She was um, a socialist, um, very close to the Labour Party. And along the years, um, a lot of disagreement happened between her and her sister and her mother. And um, a photograph taken from one of the, uh, from the album that is behind you on display there. So uh, starting from the right, Sylvia Pankhurst, Christabel Pankhurst, in the middle, Emmeline Pethick Lawrence with her husband, Frederick. They, were the, um, um, they put their fortune to the service of the cause to, um, um, and they were also one of the leaders of the WSPU. On the left, Annie Keeney. She was a worker from Lancashire. And on the far left, uh, Constance Lytton. She was an aristocrat, and she had a very um, early death in 1923, probably as a result. She had a very fragile um, um, health and a weak heart, and she was force-fed, and probably she died as a result of uh, the treatment she um, uh, underwent in prison. Uh, Charlotte Despard, also a militant, but um, she first belonged to the WSPU, but then along the way there were disagreements, as there, you know, I would say, always is in politics. But um, she created her own uh, militant uh, organisation called the Women's um, Freedom League. She was an Irish. So deeds, not words, became their motto, and they did turn to action. It went from sneaking in at political meetings and systematically interrupting politicians' speeches to heckling them in the street. And you can see here young Winston Churchill. Um, the heckling here is going fine. A few years later, he's going to be attacked by a suffragette. The suffragette had a whip and, a whip and she wanted to whip him and he managed to grab her hand and nothing happened. But um, gradually, uh, this um, activism uh, intensified. So from 1912, there was a lot of window smashing, destroying golf courses or some greenhouses at Kew Garden, burning churches or stations, setting fire to letterboxes, using explosive devices, attacking private property, and many other things. It was rather radical. So you can imagine that in 1910, when the, the poem was published, many women were starting to get black eyes from either the police or um, hostile crowds. And they were certainly beaten to earth, but to bounce, bounce all the better. So it is this side of the movement, this spectacular 
side of the movement that truly fascinated Bessie Rishworth. Bessie Rishworth was born in Adelaide in 1874, but she moved to Perth when she married Henry, Henry Wills Rishworth. She travelled a lot with her husband. Her husband was a wool merchant, so they, they travelled around the world, Hong Kong, Japan, Britain, America. And in fact, they were in London in 1908, when, and it is in 1908, in fact, that she attended, she first attended a suffrage uh, meeting. And it is um, later in 1913, when they went back to London, that uh, she said in her correspondence, the place was in an uproar. Oh, this is an interesting place and an interesting age to live in. That's what she wrote to her niece in Australia. What she saw and what she heard there in 1908-1913 had a determining impact on her for her future. She went and listened to speakers at suffrage meetings. She listened to Americans, for instance, uh, involved in the American campaign. For instance, the writer Charlotte um, uh, Perkins Gilman, who wrote the um, Yellow World paper, or Anna Shaw, but she also listened to British campaigners, uh, um, Annie Keeney, uh, we saw um, in a photograph, Emin Pankhurst, of course, Lady Frances Balfour, Lord Leighton, uh, the husband of uh, Constance Leighton, we saw a moment ago, Annie Besson, the famous socialist and feminist. Here is what Rishworth wrote again to her niece. And I wanted to show you her handwriting, and it's a very long letter, so I just could select um, two pages. So I'm going to start around here and then move on. Down. She's talking about Shaw and Perkins Gilman. They are both giant in capacity. They speak right and from the vital standpoint of things. Both seem to be filled with a great force. Humanity means human standpoints, and not either only man's standpoints or only woman, but for the great humanity that is being builded up. Mrs. Mrs. Perkins Gilman is wondrous, so powerful, so sweet to look at. A woman of 45 with a most logical brain. She brings the point out along the biological lines. Going back with the past evolution shown, how it is only where you come and the human race that emphasis is laid on sex to the detriment of our whole civilization. And that is just where we are today and why we have the present outcry. It's absolutely necessary for future progress that women should be humans first, share a common, a common humanity before they are females. That is that the whole economic condition of women must change. The sexes must be co-equal. So what was London like at the time when Rishbeth was there and what is it that she saw? What, what, what is it that she talked about and what is it that she um, read? So um, she was not in England in 1911, but she must have seen, um, I mean, it's not much. I, I know she saw some of the procession, 1908 procession, she saw some of them. And these beautiful parades of women um, all dressed in white with the... Um, sash uh, and the WSPU colors, white, purple, and, um, and green. 
she heard um, um, suffragette leaders uh, addressing crowds. This is in Trafalgar Square, Keir Hardy, the leader of um, the Labour Party, who was um, in favour of um, women's suffrage, a staunch supporter of it, although the Labour Party never put it officially on the, um, on, in their political programme. You can, just behind Keir Hardy, Emeline Pankhurst, on the far right, an Australian, Nelly Martel. And next to Nelly Martel, uh, an old campaigner from Manchester, from uh, the north of England, um, what's her name? Wollstone, Wollstone Home Amy. Well, you know the photograph now. They advertise, they, they advertise meetings uh, doing that. Wishworth may have seen these uh, drawings, these cartoons um, uh, done with chalk on pavements. And a lot of the, the drawings and uh, slogans were used in postcards, in fact. She may have heard or maybe um, come across this um, um, headline, and why not what is in these headlines? These two women are human letters. In fact, at the time, they realized they could post themselves. So they posted themselves with a message to deliver to the prime minister. And on the left, you can see a young postman. So, of course, they were expelled. And the message was, you are dead letters. Send back home. Um, Bessie Richbeth knew Muriel Matters. Muriel Matters was born in Adelaide and she was a militant. She went to England, not to fight, but once there in London, she got caught up with the fight and she, um, she socialised with, um, with Bessie, uh, Bessie Richbeth. So they must, have, they must have talked about these caravan tours uh, Muriel Matters initiated. And of course... Um, um, I mean, you read that in uh, Bessie's letters. She was deeply shocked by what happened when uh, Emily Davidson tried to grab, in fact. She didn't, throw, she didn't throw herself under the horse, but she tried to, to stop the horse to grab it, and, of course, she uh, was badly injured and, and, and died. So, um, Bessie Richworth, that was the sort of landscape she uh, saw in London. So, these are... Photos that she collected when she was in Britain, but also after when she came back to Australia, when she collected um, uh, material. I think it's important to say that Richbeth was never involved in, in, the, in the women's suffrage, in the fight for women's suffrage. Of course, um, neither in Australia nor in England, unlike other Australians who were in London and who became militant. So you recognize uh, Vida Goldstein, of course, who... Um, I mean, was um, a campaigner in Australia before being one in England, and Muriel uh, matters here. Uh, Nelly Martel on the right here, and I love this photograph. You can have a, a lot of hypotheses about, you know, what are they staring at? Who, yes, who are they staring at? Possibly a woman photographer. That's true, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important to say that um, uh, Richbeth was uh, a witness in, in London. 
And she was no doubt a sympathizer, as it came across in her, in her letter, but she was a, a witness. And the witness of uh, what was for her a historical move, um, movement. She keeps talking about, and I quote her, the epic struggle. Um, uh, that's the way she calls the British campaign. So she collected when she was there, but also when uh, she came back in, in Australia. What is interesting, but I find also intriguing, is that she collected material related to events that she was not part of, although she could have been part of it, because she was in London when it all happened. And it's also intriguing that she did not believe in, mil in militant methods. She makes it clear in, uh, in her uh, letters. But it is that side of the movement that she uh, chose to document. She was perfectly aware of the politics of the period, you know, saying that, and I quote her, the government are hiding behind the militant methods and break all their promises and have been most dishonorable. And she was aware that it was precisely the government's stalling that um, necessitated militancy. And the escalation of violence was the result of the deception and the false promises of the government. She was fully aware of it. But what is manifest uh, in her letters is her admiration for these fearless women. When reading her correspondence, you can hypothes hypothesize aspects uh, of Rishbeth's personality. And indeed, when it comes to Rishbeth, you can have hypotheses you need to have because she doesn't say an awful lot about herself. The historian Jill Rowe um, refers to her as a shadowy figure. And in a way, it's true because, for instance, she doesn't say anything about her being a citizen already, being, you know, um, being allowed to vote. She doesn't say anything, anything about her reaction as a colonial visiting her, um, the mother country. But I think we can go a little bit beyond um, the, um, the shadow, in fact, and we understand that she, she socialized a lot with uh, her husband. They were a well-to-do um, couple. They had money. And they visited London, met with Australians, traveled in the country, went to receptions. And in, in, in a few letters, she describes the beautiful evening dresses that she wears. And her excitement is really perceptible. I just wanted to take up two lines from, um, um, which, with which she ends a letter. Again, she was sending to her niece. Well, my dear, must fly and dress to go out. I do wish you could all have a peep at things here. So I think these two lines, again, really encapsulate the mixture of her socializing and being outside the movement, and at the same time, you know, having a thrill at peeping into the movement. And I think all this is interesting because I'm sure that some people may think she doesn't really fit the pattern, you know, of the committed, one-track-minded feminist. And I like this image of um, spectators peeping into the place because, in fact, her collection, the collection she built, can also be uh, regarded as an invitation for us to peep into this agitated time. In one of her letters, Rishbeth calls her collection a mixed pie. So what is, what is this mixed pie made of? So obviously photographs, 
uh, invitation to demonstration, pamphlets. You'll see I've selected a few, um, uh, a few items in the state they are in. It's very cautious with them, but I think it's, it's important to show you that these um, items need uh, preserving. In fact, they need work uh, to be done. Uh, badges, and again, it's interesting, these badges. Uh, there's a whole story behind, behind all these badges. The, 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 the badge, the uh, red, um, green, and, and white badge, is a um, WSPU badge. But because of the colors, we know, you see, they're not the traditional, what we usually associate with militancy and with the WSPU, the purple, white, and green. But in fact, before 1907, that were the colors. I mean, they had all sort of colors. And it is in 1907 that they decided on these three colors, purple, white, and green. So this badge here predates 1907. And is actually, it's in between 1903 when the WSPU was created in 1907. And a beautiful little item that is in the collection, a needle book. Um, this is actually a setup. It's not real. You know, the guy is a friend of theirs. And they, they loved reenactments. They loved it. They played with that. Some militants didn't agree with it, you know, because they thought it was really debunking and downgrading the whole prison experience. But that's a setup. There were many setups like that. This is a napkin. Um, and again, um, advertising the course. But this napkin is not from the WSPU. If you have a look at what is written, it's great law-abiding. So the constitutionalists, the peaceful campaigners, were very keen to differentiate themselves from the militants. So each time they could do it, they added law-abiding to their pamphlets. A postcard. You've got two other postcards at the back, but not this one. Okay. So some archives are accidental, others are meticulously curated, and Rishbeth is the latter, it's very meticulous. There are notes on many images she collected, and it's clear that she had a focus of sorts when she gathered material in Britain and in the subsequent decades of her life in Australia. So a photo album um, that's at the back entitled A Pictorial History of the Suffrage Movement in Great Britain. And the dates here just really shows that she's focusing on militancy, 1906-1913. And it's interesting because the way she collected things, it's as if um, the photos selected um, were some kind of counter-discourse to the one advertised by the press at the time. She writes in her letters about the lies of the press, about the manipulation of facts, and the fact that the press was I mean, basically playing the ventriloquist of, of the government. The Daily, the Times, was notoriously anti-suffrage, and until 1910, so was the Daily Mirror. And the press tried hard to represent the suffragettes as the attackers and the police as the victims. A quote I found in, one in, um, in the Daily Mirror. Police were struck with umbrellas. Well, quite possible. <laughs> Several helmets were knocked off. Wow. And a few officers were carried off their feet by the mad rush of women. Unlikely, I think. 
The reality of it was that women were frequently beaten up or even sexually molested by the police and male opponents. The police certainly gave them, if any, very little uh, protection. There are many examples of suffragette having a narrow escape. Um, this is an example here. And I think this is extremely interesting. The only one that's looking at the photographer is the woman. And look, there's only very few uh, policemen inside. They didn't get any protection. They knew what was going to happen. But it was, um, each time it was the same thing. Especially on when there was um, of, of results of by-election or election, when the liberal candid candidate was defeated, usually they had a hard time. And Emin Pankhurst and Nelly Martel had a very narrow escape uh, at uh, one point in a, a northern um, a town um, of England. So in a way, you see this perspective, the perspective that she gives, it seems that it's aimed to set the record straight. Another point of her focus in 1913, when she was in London, militancy was at its um, um, height. The spectacle of the suffragettes was ubiquitous, and it was indeed a spectacle that the suffragettes had wanted to create, to make their fight and also to make women uh, visible, sometimes at all costs. And it was everywhere in, in the press from 1912, 1913. And it no doubt would have been part of the discussions that Rishbeth had with her friends and with the people she socialized with. Like many people at the time, Rishbeth was undoubtedly impressed by the determination and by the stamina of the women, who would rather go to prison than pay a fine when they were tried. And she was impressed by the hunger strikers, of course. She was extremely shocked by the repression of the movement. From 1912, in prison, hunger strikers were force-fed. The last thing the government needed was a suffragette dying in prison who would become a martyr. This force-feeding was horrendous. Constance, uh, Constant Leeton, um, I mentioned earlier, wrote a book about her experience of force-feeding and nothing to do with the sort of medical force-feeding that can happen um, in hospital. A tube was actually inserted in their nose, and sometimes the food and the liquid that was inserted went straight to their lungs. Nobody, there was no, I mean, it's a miracle that there was no death at the time, but presumably a lot of women were really weak and they had um, an early death um, later. This practice uh, equated to torture. Uh, by doctors, by the clergy, by a lot of the press, right, sort of changed their mind, it revolted the public and it aroused sympathy for suffragettes who were injured by these uh, procedures. As a result, the Home Office introduced in April 1913 what is called the Prisoners' Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act, also known as the Cat and Mouse Act. In fact, the government, they were afraid that the suffragette might die in prison. So what they invented through this act, a prisoner who was considered too weak could be temporarily released to give her time to recover and to be fit enough to go back to prison. So women were under, um, they were released from prison, they were then under house arrest. And it's rather obvious that a lot of them didn't go back to a prison and went into hiding, playing mouse to the police cat. 
A copy of the Suffragette, of, um, Suffragette was, um, became the official newspaper of the WSPU after 1913. Um, so a copy of the Suffragette of August 1913 relates the effect of the Cotton Mouse Act on Emmeline Pankhurst. So she'd been condemned to three years' imprisonment in April 1913. She was released on April the 12th, then arrested again on May the 26th, then released four days later, then rearrested two weeks later, then released again two days later, etc. So in fact, she was so weak that she could be kept in prison for only um, a few days. And Rishbeth mentioned that in, uh, in uh, one of her letters, a lot of people thought that uh, Rishbeth was going to die. She was absolutely skinny. Now, to carry on with the Rishbeth focus, two items which are on display uh, tonight behind you, a prison brooch and a hanger strike a medal. So this is Louis Cullen's prison brooch sent to Bessie Rishbeth when she was still gathering uh, material. Louis uh, Cullen, here she is, was born in 1866 um, she, in England. She joined the WSPU after hearing one of the leaders, uh, Annie Keeney, speak in 1906. She was an organiser uh, in the movement, and she was a speaker, as she explained in her letters. She was very proud to have been a speaker at the June 1908 Hyde Park demonstration. It was a huge demonstration. And you can see here, she's actually wearing the speaker, uh, her speaker badge with, of course, um, the, the sash, WSPU um, sash. But a, a poor health resulting from her commitment to the cause, she was imprisoned. She was never forcefully fed. She was imprisoned for six weeks. It forced, her, it forced her withdrawal from political activism. And she emigrated to Australia in 1911 with her husband. So in fact, the prison brooch was designed by Sylvia Pankers, the artist of the family. And it is the symbol of the, per the portcullis of uh, the House of Common, the gate. And the arrow is the convict uh, symbol. And these brooches were given to commemorate women's courage and sacrifice. So Louis, uh, Louise uh, Cullen, uh, with her badge and with the illuminated address, signed and given to her by uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, as you can see here. She was given that uh, by Pankhurst as a former uh, prisoner, as a thank you. In the collection, too, is this photograph of a sketch. And in fact, it's a photograph of her prison cell as described uh, to and sketched by a friend of hers, in fact. So the second item uh, is Letitia Withall, or Whithall, I don't know how you pronounce it, Hunger Strike Medal. Whithall was born in Australia. She went to England uh, with her parents as a child. I think she was eight. And she became a suffragette with the WSPU. So this is the letter, and again, this is behind you, that she sent years later in 1961 to Bessie Rishbeth. So like many suffragettes, she had an alias, as you can see, under her name, Leslie Hall. She said in another letter that she had taken up that nickname because she was getting into trouble and she didn't want to uh, upset her parents and she didn't want 
um, this to have any, you know, he didn't want her parents to have any problems. But very often, uh, in fact, suffragette had a, a nickname as a way of um, escaping being traced by, uh, by the police. And in fact, in her letter, if you can see it's here, she's explaining how it works. So she talks about the plain silver bar, which means that it means imprisonment. And but on hers, if you can see, there are two coloured bars, which mean that she was force-fed uh, twice. In fact, maybe more actually. Um, and of course, you know, in her letter, um, on the second page there, she expresses her pride at um, at um, having been part of this um, of this struggle. Now, very important, finally, is the transnational dimension of the collection. The protagonists of the collection overlap countries and continents, as we've seen, Australia, Britain, America. Um, Vida Goldstein, for instance, um, was invited in 1911 by the Pankers to give speeches and you know, just to show a citizen, a female citizen, what it was like uh, to have a female citizen. She also, in 1902, she was in America and she contributed to the creation of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance with CAT, the um, American uh, campaigner CAT. Um, and of course, Richbeth herself was the maker of many uh, transnational connections. Through her many trips throughout the world, through her relationship with the Suffragette Fellowship in London, which helped her complete her collection, also through the personal connections that she had with former suffragettes, but also, also that she initiated between the suffragettes. So Richbeth collected material, material from the time she was in England, but also until the late 50s and early 60s, when Louis Cullen sent her material before she died in 1960. And this really bears witness to this transnational network. And also, the Bessie Richbeth papers really engage researchers to create connections with other archives in, in the library, with Adela Pankhurst, for instance, who, the younger uh, Pankhurst's daughter who emigrated in Australia in 1914. And the Pankhurst Walsh, her husband's name, Walsh papers, are here at the library. You can also connect Richbeth with the papers of Rubirich, also with the papers of Jesse Street, although... Richbeth was a bit conservative, did, didn't much like Jesse Street. And of course, you know, numerous books and pamphlets written by American, Australian, British suffragists and suffragettes. So after a few months uh, researching the collection in 2011, when I was a Harold White Fellow here, I began to think of the archive as a mosaic. And not all archives are, are like that. And it is both a mosaic and a lens through which to see a period in history. And I think Richbeth was very much thinking about the future when she made her collection. And I felt, in a way, I, I was um, completing the mosaic uh, through my own lens and filling up the gaps. There are quite a few gaps. She destroyed a lot of things. Filling up the gaps, assembling the pieces and joining uh, the dots. Also with the backstories I was familiar with. In a way, some would argue that her collection flattens 
the British campaign for women's suffrage and deprives it of its complexity. You know, it may be argued that her lens, in fact, has reduced the movement to its militant side. You know, off the militant stage, a lot was going on. The non-militants, who were numerous, they were much more numerous than the militant, they contributed a great deal to the first victory in 1918. It was the first installment of the rights uh, franchise in England when women over 30 with property qualification could vote. And then 1928, when universal suffrage eventually um, uh, happened. What comes across in her correspondence is her intellectual honesty and her acknowledgement that she needed assistant, uh, assistance with her collection. We get the sense that she knows she's not a historian. But now, thanks to, her, to an elaborate historiography dating from the second um, phase of feminism, but also uh, more recently, people have been able to mine these sorts of archives in new ways. So in some ways, we can now see more than she did, even though she was a witness. And at the same time, in the mosaic, with these fabulous fragments uh, from the movement, she does bring us closer to things. These are things I'm grappling with, having begun my own book about her and her papers. I'm particularly interested in the way image and words work together, in the way photographs both hide and reveal in the way a speculative narrative can be woven thanks to the historical backstory. I want to show you a few favorite vignettes of mine. I found this is a beautiful a photograph. I'm particularly fond of it. There's no title. I think we can, could trace that in the Museum of London. I'm sure it's in the Museum of London that we would know what it is. But I don't know, maybe this policeman is standing in front of a house where a woman is under house arrest, recuperating, you know, the cat making sure the mouse won't escape. At any rate, I like the way this photograph shows, you know, two worlds apart, not looking at each other. Another vignette. Um, this is 1908. It was actually the beginning of the procession, the coronation procession we I showed you a minute ago. And so you recognize, starting from the left, Christabel. In the background, at the back, Adela, Mabel Tuke, um, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, and Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence. And there are many photographs like this one, where Adela Pankhurst is in the background, behind her mother and her sisters. And this one is blurry, and it's as if there was something emblematic. I want to read it like that the way it can be read as emblematic of her position in the family, or at least the way she was sometimes regarding by her sisters and her mother. Final vignette, and again, a favorite of mine. You know, can you imagine yourself and in her position nowadays? And I'm wondering, what might she have been thinking and feeling more than 100 years ago? You know, men often threw eggs and rotten, potato rotten tomatoes at them. So the event that is happening tonight is important in different ways. So the issues of women's rights is still as valid as it used to be. Some women in the world still are still not citizens. 
And if an equality of rights has been achieved legally in the Western world, in practice it hasn't. Raising money to make such a significant and original collection accessible to researchers, to students, and also to the wider public is essential. But also closer to the heart of Bessie Richbeth, there is something equally significant. And this is related to the way she regarded her collection as an exhibit. She uses that term all the time. And you may have noticed uh, the way photographs, for instance, were annotated or had stickers. There are also multiple uh, notes in cardboards, like cue cards. There are loads of them like that. To explain images, um, not always accurately, there are quite a few errors and very awkward, very often, but it's there. So her endeavor can be traced in the letters she wrote to friends, to Harold White, the first director of the National Library, and to Prime Minister Menzies. So after first thinking about creating a museum of women's suffrage in Perth, where she lived, she then proposed a hall to commemorate pioneer women and their contribution to the building up of the Commonwealth of Australia. And she proposed that such a hall should be erected in, in Canberra. For her, and I quote Brishbeth, the creation of a pioneer hall should prove an inspiration to the present-day women of Australia to take a greater interest in public affairs. She wrote this on the 5th of February, 1954. Sorry. And with a few gaps in her correspondence, we learn that she finally decided to bequeath her collection to the National Library. So the event tonight, when we think about it, is making her exhibit happen. And it may be going to be a bit bold there. Maybe the prelude to a true exhibition of her material in the future. But now, at last, with the research and curatorial assistance she was seeking. And maybe 2018, um, the centenary of the principle of women's suffrage in Britain could be celebrated with her exhibit here in the Treasure Gallery. I'd like to finish this presentation with two things. First, Rishbeth's book, uh, The March of Australian Women, which she finally published in 1964, age 90, and which retraces her 50-year campaign for women's rights. As the president of the Australian Federation of Women's Voters, as a member of the International Alliance of Women's Suffrage and Equal Citizenship, and uh, many other things. Second, I'd like also to finish with Bessie Richbeth's words written to Harold White on the second, 22nd uh, of uh, June, 1956, which reveal how significant the British campaign for women's suffrage was in her eyes, for women's rights, uh, for freedom and for democracy. To relate the exhibit in my possession as a living memorial and appreciation of the epic struggle for human freedom made by the women of Britain, their demand to participate in the civic affairs of their country, for their recognition of women's right to vote, to enjoy political rights and an equal footing with men, will take its rightful place in history. The great struggle that swept these women into prison, 600 of them, 
has already proved to be a foundation stone laid by them for the ever-widening claim known today as Western ideology, self-determination, self-government, in contrast to totalitarianism. I fervently hope, out of the heaps of files, photos, books and papers which I possess, to pay a tribute to this important milestone in human history. Thank you. Thank you so much, Beatrice, for introducing us to Bessie Rishbeth, for telling us about the development of the movement in Britain and the connections elsewhere, and giving us that gorgeous peep into the collection itself. It's now my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anne Summers, AO. Dr. Summers is a best-selling author, journalist and thought leader with an influential career in politics, the media, business and the non-government sector in Australia, Europe and the United States. I can't imagine that there is one of us in this room who has not read Anne Summers. She's the author of eight books, including the classic Damned Whores and God's Police, first published in 1975. I'm delighted to say that she is represented in the library's collection through her publications and her personal papers. Please welcome Dr Summers. I'll put my timer on, try, try and remember to look at it. Um, thanks very much for the introduction, Anne-Marie, and, and Beatrice, thank you for that amazing introduction. Um, to Bessie Richberth, and as you were talking, um, one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about when I knew that I was coming down here to do this event um, was I was trying to remember whether or not I had ever looked at the Bessie Richberth collection myself when I was doing research here, and I checked the footnotes of my book and I couldn't find any reference. I thought, well, maybe I hadn't, but then when I looked at some of the photographs and some of the other items that you've reproduced, and I know that I have copies of them at home, and there's only one place I could have got them, it was from that collection. So, um, yes, I did use it. Now, look, I was... Um, um, uh, that would have been in the early 70s, 1973, 74, that I looked at it. So I'm glad someone's finally come along and done something useful with it so the rest of us uh, can have access to it. I was asked to talk about the modern-day women's movement and the, and the relationship of that to, um, to women's suffrage, and uh, I'm sort of going to talk about that a bit. Um, uh, certainly, when, the, when we call it the second wave women's movement or the modern women's movement, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it is over a generation old now and there's a whole new movement uh, today, I'm very pleased to say. So, uh, in a sense, the people of my generation are kind of in between the first wave and, and what is now third or fourth wave. But when we started um, our radicalism and our activism in the uh, late 1960s and early 1970s, and one of the first things that we realised is that we knew nothing about our history. Uh, in fact, we didn't even know if we had a history. And uh, one of the things... Uh, I was very interested in history, and uh, one of the things that I uh, became very obsessed about, and it was one of the motivations for wanting to write down Halls and God's Police, was to try and discover if we had a history and if so, what it was. And so... Um, my story for most of my life, and particularly for that period during the 19, early 1970s up until 1975 when Damned Halls was published, 
was an, a kind of a mixture of activism and research and trying to reconcile the two things. And that's what I've sort of done all my life because I like to know what the story is, but also I like to be out there trying to help change the world. But one, I guess the, the two big points that I would like to make tonight, one is, um, is that what happens to our history. I mean, we had a huge amount of uh, discussion, a lot of writing, a lot of publications, a lot of things um, in the 1970s where we said, oh, my God, who knew about the history? Well, now we've found it, we must never forget it. And, of course, it's completely forgotten, and now along comes suffragette, and everyone says, oh, my God, fancy that. Um, so I guess one of my, question, one of my issues tonight is, is how we have to try to find ways for the history of women's struggle, not just for the vote, but for in, in all other aspects of our history. We have to find ways for that history to be incorporated into the main history of the country. And... Um, it shouldn't be that hard, but it obviously is because we haven't managed it. And just to, if I can just segue just for one little moment to the point that um, Beatrice made at the end about hoping that there might be a, a, um, a museum of women or some memorial uh, established in, in 2018 to um, perhaps house the Rishbeth collection and celebrate women's activities. I think it's pretty relevant that we're sitting here tonight in the week that Hillary Clinton um, has been nominated the first ever woman to be nominated for political, um, for, you know, to lead a political party in, a, in the United States to run for the presidency. And she has, well, who knows if she's going to win or not, but she has a very good chance on paper, at least, of winning. And I think what's very insignificant about uh, the way in which she made her announcement and how she claimed victory this week, and if you haven't seen it, I do recommend you run home tonight and have a look on... Um, um, I, you know, on whatever social media you use to see the video that she released celebrating the announcement because she has firmly anchored her candidacy in the history of women's struggle. And she, she's made this film, it's about five, five or six minutes long, and it starts with the women's suffragettes. It starts, I mean, they're probably the American ones, so they're not suffragettes, but women's suffrage fighters. It shows the women in white marching for suffrage and she traces the history of women's struggle and places her own accomplishment this week firmly in that tradition. Secondly, she uh, made the point in her speech the other night when she claimed the victory um, that it was the um, of her mother. She was mourning the fact that her mother was no longer alive and not there to see her daughter uh, achieve this amazing milestone, that her mother was actually born on the day that American women were awarded the vote, uh, which I think was in 1924, wasn't it? 1924? 24, I think. Um, and thirdly, she wore white. She wore white. And she never wears white. So, I mean, I think it's very significant that we have the first female um, candidate for President of the United States and possibly first female president is somebody who knows that history, acknowledges it, and will uh, hopefully not let it be forgotten. And secondly, Barack Obama announced not so long ago uh, the creation of a new museum in Washington, um, and that will be a museum of women's politics and history. So they've done it, and it's about time we got on with it, I think. Um, one of the things I'll just, just make two point, final points, because I know we don't have a lot of time left, but one is that when I was doing my research, I spent a lot of time um, in, in the Mitchell Library and in, in this library reading... Um, documents, reading papers and kind of doing primary research, partly because uh, I wanted to be able to tell the story of what had happened, uh, how Australian women got the vote and was it true that we were just given it, to, well, it was given to us on a plate 
and it turns out that while we didn't have to horsewhip cabinet ministers or slash paintings in the National Gallery or get up to some of the things that the um, suffragettes got up to, we were in fact, we did, there, we did fight for the vote, it wasn't just given to us. So I wanted to be able to tell that story and that was one of the reasons I would have been looking at the Bessie Rishbeth papers and many other papers. And um, one of the things that I, I think is interesting about the history of the, of the women in that era and, and subsequently is they were very conservative, most of them, as you've made the point, Bessie Richbeth was very conservative, as was Rose Scott and as were many of the other women. And, and, and me, as a, somebody in my 20s, reading all this stuff was pretty kind of thought, oh, really? You know, I don't really see any connection between them and me um, because they were so <laughs> fuddy-duddy and they were against booze and they were against sex, and, you know. Um, and they didn't seem to have any relationship to the radicalism of the women's liberation movement but in fact, when you kind of consider the political framework in which they were operating and also the historical era in which they, they lived, um, some of what they did was in fact quite radical, even if it was different from the way we see the world today. I mean, for example, in the 1920s, um, Rose Scott in Sydney and others you know, began the first family planning clinic in Martin Place in Sydney. Now, OK, it was called the Racial Hygiene Association, and there was a bit of a eugenics tinge to what they were doing, but nevertheless, they were helping women to, con to um, control their fertility, and as we know, that is one of the fundamentals uh, to uh, women's independence, to be able to control your fertility. So it was very interesting to me to sit in this library and to read these papers and just to be sort of to be confronted with um, the, the the words and and um, and and in case in the case of some of the papers like Bessie Rishbeth's, the actual you know souvenirs if you like or the the um, the memorabilia um, of of these earlier struggles and I've become kind of quite addicted to um, to doing that and even when it hasn't been strictly relevant to my own research. I've done quite a lot of it. And I just wanted to give you a, finish up by giving you a couple of examples of um, why I think uh, it's so important that the collections of papers exist. And I'm so glad that there's such a priority given to them by this library. And I'm so pleased you're trying to raise money to um, digitise the, uh, the Bessie Rishbeth collection and make it accessible to a wider audience because... You know, it is true, when I was doing my research in the 70s, you know, every time I wanted to look at something, I did have to come down to Canberra, and uh, that was not easy as a student. I didn't have the money. It was very difficult. I didn't have a car, all that stuff. Today, when you jump on your computer and read stuff, you know, in libraries all around the world, is such a fantastic resource that it's something that we should be very... And the, um, I'm so upset about what's happened with Trove because the digitisation of newspapers project has been such an absolute boon for people like me who research... Uh, constantly online, so I'm, I really hope we can turn that around. I wish we didn't have such barbarians in charge of this country. But just one of the things that I th I'll never, um, will never kind of leave me. I mean, you, you can't actually digitise some of the. You can pho digitise photographs of the, the four valour badge, but you can't actually, you know, have the three-dimensional copy of it. I just wanted to let everybody know something that I only myself discovered a couple of hours ago when I went and had a quick visit to uh, Old Parliament House, as I persist on calling it, because I used to work there, um, in the area that used to be the Parliamentary Library, so those of you who are familiar with the building will remember that, is an exhibition space with lots of um, stuff there. You'll see Quentin Dresser's 
Quentin Bryce's dress that she wore when she swore in Julia Gillard as Prime Minister. That's there, which I didn't know, which was a nice surprise. But also they have a For Valour badge uh, belonging to somebody else. It's in beautiful condition. It's there in a... And it's the badge that was given to women who under, underwent um, hunger strikes. So I think that's uh, nice to know that there are, you can actually go and physically see these things. But I'll just finish with two points. One is about um, you know, sitting up there in the manuscripts room, as I did for, for, for many, many a, a day and a week, looking through people's papers. You come across um, not only surprising information, but... but there's just a thing about being in contact with the papers that people actually used. Um, I find is very there's a lot of meaning in that. You know, you learn things that you wouldn't expect to learn. And just to, to, to sidetrack for one second, just to give you an example of how somebody else um, has treated those important. I interviewed Kate Blanchett a few years ago, and one of the things that she told me that when she was preparing for the role as Elizabeth I, and I'm sure we've all seen that wonderful movie. When she was preparing for that role, she not only read lots of biographies of Elizabeth and did a lot of research and you know studied up in English history, but she went out and got cop and found copies of Elizabeth I's letters, and she actually bought one. She actually owns a letter written by Elizabeth I, but she wanted to study the handwriting, and she said you can learn so much about a person and their character from the way they write. And for, you know, is their writing scrawly or is it is it tight? Is it you know, whatever? And uh, I just thought that just to hear her describe what she was able to get uh, to, to, in order to make create that character for that role from a letter, I think was was wonderful. And I've got just two examples of my own, not quite as good as that, I'm afraid. But um, one, I can't even remember why I was doing this now. But but not so long ago, I had a look at the, the papers of Keith Murdoch, father of Rupert. Um, upstairs in the manuscripts room and I was, uh, I think it was when I was researching my book The Lost Mother, it was in fact because Keith Murdoch and his wife Elizabeth Murdoch were art collectors and they collected the artists that I wrote a book about called The Lost Mother and um, so I was just going through all his papers and just hoping that I might just stumble across something that might be useful and there's all sorts of wonderful stuff about you know invitations to the palace and you know who sat next to who at dinner and all that stuff and it was all very you know, completely irrelevant to what I was doing, but it was just interesting and I just enjoyed doing it, so I kept on looking. And then I looked at one of the folders, which was about his... Um, well, the time when he was basically running the, the Melbourne Herald. And I came across this... I can't even remember now whether it was a, a book or just a set of papers, but what it was, it was the mechanism that he used to evaluate the paper every day. So he'd get the paper every day and he would mark it up and, and he had this little sheet where he'd marked up what was wrong with every single headline, story, placement, whatever, and then sent it down to the editor. <laughs> Father like son. And, <laughs> and the final example I'll give you, I don't want to sound like an egomaniac here, but this is from my own papers. And I came down here last September and spent a, a couple of days looking at my own papers because... Um, I was running a conference last September uh, to mark the 40th anniversary of the publication of Dan Tours and God's Police. And so I just wanted to go and sit down with the papers and reacquaint myself with, with the you know, what I'd written and how I'd done it and whatever, just to kind of immerse myself in it. And what I found, so I found, learned two fascinating things from doing that um, because there is actually a huge collection of, I think, everything to do with that book is in this library, uh, more than you'd ever need. 
Um, but one of the things that, that I had completely forgotten about was galley proofs. We used to have galley proofs. God knows why we ever had them. But anyway, these proofs are like this long and you have to correct them and then you'd send them back. And then you get page proofs and then you have to correct them. And you send them back and then you get a, you know, a bound, bound copy of the book or a, a, a proof, proof copy of the book. I mean, it was just insane, the level of production. So that was pretty interesting. But the thing that really got me was looking at my original manuscripts. And this book, of course, was written on an type, electric typewriter. I was very flat on an electric typewriter. But in every chapter was written at least six or seven times, at least. And um, what I used to do um, you was know, the original cut and paste. You know, you'd type it up and you'd cut, cut out that sentence. <laughs> and you'd paste it on the page before. And some of my, paper, my manuscript papers, honestly, it's like spaghetti. And it's all these little bits of paper. And anyone's welcome to go and have a look at them if you want to see what cut and paste used to be like um, before computers. And it just was... Um, Another one of these things, that there was just no substitute for looking at the actual papers of anybody, but your own Rupert Murdoch, um, uh, Rose Scott, you know, Elizabeth I or Bessie Rishpeth. So I would um, encourage you all to um, immerse yourself in that collection and thank the library very much for doing this work. Thank you.